Hi everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is August 21st, 2017. Ambassador William Haggerty joined the Tokyo Embassy just one week ago, brought his family and is raring to go. The U.S.-Japan relationship is hinged on this relationship that he is heading up. I'm joined by my guest, Glenn Fukushima. Glenn, welcome. Great to see you. Thank it's you. always great to see you. You're traveling back and forth. That's right. I just got into Japan a couple of days ago and mm -hmm. I'll be here for a couple of weeks this time. You've been involved. You were working with the, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office many years ago. You've been involved in the U.S.-Japan relationship throughout your career. This is a new page with uh, William Haggerty coming in as the new ambassador. It's going to be different than it was with uh, Caroline Kennedy, don't you think? Yeah, it's very interesting because I was at U.S. Chair from 85 to 90, and Bob Lighthizer, who's the new U.S. Trade Representative, was one of the deputies at U.S. Chair at the time. And there are a lot of, a lot of people who say uh, that some of the issues regarding U.S.-Japan relations, especially on the economic side, harken back to the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Right. Um, but I was on uh, Hillary Clinton's Asia Policy Working Group uh, for a couple of years, uh, 2015 to 16. So I've uh, been watching this relationship from the standpoint, vantage point of Washington, but also uh, have a home in San Francisco and also come to Japan. So from those three places, I've been watching this uh, relationship the last few years. Yes, well, William Haggerty, he was the uh, Secretary of Trade and Commerce at Tennessee, mm -hmm. in, in the, at the state of Tennessee. Right. Apparently he did a great job, knocked it out of the park. Tennessee was the most popular state for Japanese investment during the period that he was the Secretary. Hmm. I wasn't aware of that. I know that he was quite responsible for getting companies, I think Nissan was one of the companies, and he said, uh, quite a bit of contact with Japanese companies that have invested in the state of Tennessee. Okay. And Tennessee, Obviously, is a state where um, Bill Brock, the U.S. Trade Representative, when I was uh, at USTR, Harkins from uh, uh, from Tennessee, and also Howard Baker, uh, who was ambassador here, was also from Tennessee. So there's some close relations between Tennessee and Japan. You know, that period where you were at USTR was so contentious, it was so tough, mm -hmm. and the trade issues were really, I mean, the, the United States and the Japanese were just at loggerheads on a, a wide range of issues. Mm -hmm. And the, the atmosphere now is not so contentious. I mean, it has calmed down a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, TPP by uh, the president has been canceled. There's right. no more TPP. It's going to be a, a bilateral relationship if there's going to be any, mm -hmm. and apparently, uh, Ambassador Haggerty is here to kind of set that stage. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think a lot of observers believe that uh, Ambassador Haggerty was chosen in part because of his business background, and uh, Donald Trump seems to like two kinds of people, uh, business people and military people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, from 85 to 90 when I was at U.S. Chair, it's true that there were a lot of very contentious uh, bilateral issues. And I think actually this particular administration does focus on the bilateral versus the multilateral. Also, it's interesting that the administration focuses on, uh, on uh, trade imbalances as a big problem. And uh, so I remember that uh, uh, Bob Lighthizer a few years ago had a big article in the New York Times, an op-ed piece, in which he said that uh, many people mistakenly assume that Republicans are free traders. Uh, and that Democrats are protectionists. However, he said in this article, when I was a deputy U.S. chair during the Reagan administration, I'm very proud of the fact that we succeeded in limiting Japanese steel exports to the United States, Japanese auto exports to the United States, Japanese consumer electronics, Japanese semiconductors, and also we protected Harley-Davidson, the motorcycle company from Japan. Mm -hmm. So he, he takes pride in-, in Turn um, that crank. Yeah, yeah. So, so it'll be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see, and it's, oh. um, I mean, the fact that, once again, autos apparently are another issue. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the situation now is so vastly different. 
there are foreign cars, I mean, in Tokyo, the foreign cars seem to outnumber the domestic vehicles. So really? why, well, I mean, here <laughs> in Europeans Tokyo. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, the European, yeah. sure. I mm, mean, the, yeah. the, the number and the, right. the variety of foreign cars here mm. is just astounding compared mm -hmm. to the way it used to be. Right. And I, I, I sense that the president is still harping on this automobile issue that, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're gonna move the, the steering wheel to the other side and we're going to do it so that it's, you know, mm. I, I don't know if that, that argument you works know, so much The way anymore. I'm looking at it is that on agricultural products, I think there will be a push to try to open Japan, in part because, as you said, the president withdrew the U.S. from TPP. As you know, the Australian beef imports to Japan have a 27.2% uh, tariff level. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Uh, brief imports into Japan have a 38.5% tariff level. Uh, the reason for the difference is that Australia and Japan have a bilateral EPA. And mm -hmm. uh, when this continues, for the next, in, in a few years, the Australian, uh, the tariff on Australian beef into Japan is going to reduce, come down to 19%. So it's going to be 19 versus 38.5. If the U.S. had agreed to TPP and that had gone forward, both would have gone down to 9%. Mm -hmm. But because of this differential, uh, I think the U.S. beef producers are lobbying very hard to get the U.S. USTR in particular to open up the Japanese beef market for Americans, right? right. So on that, I think on agricultural products, there will be an effort. I think uh, Purdue, the Secretary of Agriculture, also is very interested in trying to open up the Japanese market. But when it comes to autos, you know, my sense is that there are very few American auto manufacturers that look at Japan as an attractive market because it is a relatively shrinking market mm -hmm. and also because there are so many uh, adjustments that have to be made in order to be successful in this market. So I think on autos, there's actually going to be more of an attempt to reduce Japanese exports to the United States, either through getting Japan to reduce exports from Japan or, more likely, reducing the imports into, Japan, into the United States from Canada and Mexico through NAFTA. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be more of an attempt to protect as opposed to trying to get into this market. How about airplanes? How about airplanes? Something you know something about? Airplanes, I mean, you know, Boeing and, and other, I mean, especially with all of this uh, talk about the need for Japan to increase its defense capabilities mm -hmm. with North Korea in mind in particular, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more defense procurement from Japan. Right. Well, from the United States. Well, also, I mean, Boeing just in, recently announced the um, placing on the board, their board, mm. of Caroline Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of I guess what they've done is realized how important the, the lobbying and the, the government facilitation aspect of selling these, you know, these Well, but I think, I think, you know, Boeing's done that for quite some time. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember right after um, Susan Schwab stepped down as U.S. Trade Representative, she joined the board of Boeing. Also, uh, I think Bill Daley, after he stepped down as being the uh, Secretary of Commerce and Clinton Administration, joined the board of Boeing. Right. So, I don't think that's anything new. Is there a lesson there for us? I mean, for other mm. other competitors who are in the Japanese market to to get these kind of significant people who have been in government who are well, kind of going yeah, into the... But I think if you look at major American companies that do uh, business globally, uh, most of them do try to get people on their boards who have either business experience or political experience mm -hmm. on a global basis. So. I think it's been a trend for the last, I'd say, 20 to 30 years for these uh, multinational corporations to try to get people with that kind of background. Right, right. Getting back to Ambassador Haggerty, though, mm -hmm. um, do you have any skin with him? Do you know him? Have you uh, I sat met him down a couple of times him? when he was here in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. He was here from 89 to 92, I think, with the Long Boston Consulting sure. Group. And I arrived in 1990 with AT&T, and I immediately got involved with the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. 
And uh, I remember meeting him in some of the ACCJ meetings, mm -hmm. but that was way back in the um, early 90s, so since then I haven't met him. Yeah, and There was a party actually for him that the Ambassador Society hosted in Washington, D.C. Right. on the 28th of last month, but I was out of town, so I wasn't able to go to that It was party. a busy week. There were a lot of parties there, weren't, weren't yes. there? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even though he was here for three years, three years does not a prominent individual make in this market, right? So um, I'm glad he had the experience. He's going to get uh, full bore uh, nowadays. Um, he doesn't seem to be much of a politician, but mostly, like you said, a, a businessman. And but, I, you know, my understanding is that he he worked on the Romney campaign in 2012, and he worked on the Jeb Bush campaign in 2016. So it does. I, I've heard from friends of mine in Tennessee that he's been quite involved with the Republican mm -hmm. Party in Tennessee. So in addition to being a business person, I think he has had considerable. You know, uh, interaction with the political community. What's your view on this? I'm, I'm really keen to hear. You know, in the past, the the position of ambassador to Japan it was it was a top post. It usually went to a a, a very prominent politician, and that that mold was broken a little bit with John Roos, who came in as a as a lawyer, as a businessman, and it turns out he did a a pretty good job. Oh yeah, he did a very good job. So right. I think I think the the jury is out on how Haggerty will do, but um, I'm expecting him to do, you know, superbly. He's got uh, Joe Young working as his DCM. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I think Ambassadors Japan, there's been a, a real variety of people. As you say, there have been people like uh, Mike Mansfield and, you know, Fritz Mondale, uh, Tom Foley, and right. Howard Baker, prominent politicians. But also there have been, you know, people uh, who didn't have diplomatic experience. Like Tom Schieffer was mm -hmm. someone who came... Uh, he did a good job too, didn't he? he? Yeah, he yeah. did too. So I think you know he was basically a, a business person and also you know co-owner of the Texas Rangers with uh, George W. Bush. Um, but he was a Texas state legislator, so he had a political background as well as business background. And uh, then Mike Armacost was you know basically a, a government person who was ambassador here. So there's been a variety, I think, of people. But um, I think Japan has been very fortunate in getting good ambassadors here. Yeah, I think so too. We've got um, September just coming up. That's mm -hmm. really the, the start of the uh, business year here in Japan. And uh, all the activities that go all the way until maybe the end of December mm -hmm. start now, and it's, it's usually a very active time. Yes. What's on your schedule? Well, I'm going to be teaching at Kyoto University in uh, September. Oh, really? And uh, mm. I am uh, going back and forth um, you know, several times, eight or nine times a year. And um, so it's been very interesting to... Uh, you know, uh, keep in touch with what's going on in Washington. But also I've been to uh, Honolulu, Chicago, Boston, New York, and San Francisco to give talks mm -hmm. about U.S.-Japan and U.S.-Asia issues. And then uh, spending about 25% of my time in Japan. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be also in Los Angeles for a conference in, uh, in October, a uh, global trade conference. And... Um, yeah, so I'm that's great. Enjoying things. So in Kyoto, you'll you'll be teaching there from time to time. Well, this I taught two years ago at Kyoto University in the Graduate School of Management, uh, a course on government business relations, mm -hmm. and uh, use a lot of Harvard Business School cases. And uh, last year they asked me to do it, but last year I was busy with the campaign in the U.S. So uh, this year, for two weeks, from the 19th to the 29th of September, I'll be in uh, Kyoto to teach this course. That's great. One of the issues that comes up in in attempting to do politics and business here in Japan is the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that I'm sure is probably a, a big component of what it is that you're talking about. So much of facilitating government relations here in Japan is colored by the fear of 
igniting uh, FCPA kind of investigation. Hmm. Have you had kind of a interaction or are you guiding people on how to facilitate an, an interaction or a, a relationship with a Japanese politician to guide them away from you know, that fear? I haven't actually been doing consulting myself uh, for companies in that regard. In the cases that I deal with, um, <clears throat> certainly in uh, various countries uh, other than Japan, mm -hmm. uh, especially like in Southeast Asia, uh, some of these cases uh, do deal specifically with issues of uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and uh, ways to mitigate that, those problems. Um, but um, I'm not currently uh, doing any uh, active consulting work for, mm -hmm. for companies. Have you had to address the FCPA issue when you've advised people or when, when you're working with people, you know, you can do this, but you shouldn't do yeah, that because yeah, that sure. would be, a, yeah. you know, yeah. no, I mean, perceived it's, it's, as. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, Anytime you know American business goes out abroad, um, they need to be aware of the local practices and how that relates to the U.S. laws. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly a major well, area. It's always a challenge. You've been here for a long time, and you've developed these relationships. Not everybody's like that. Not everybody has access to individuals that can do that. So internally, they try and have a a, a process or a project to to generate that relationship with people of. Position, in positions of power, and that's a really delicate dance. I mean, in, in other countries, you might, you know, take people out to dinner or wine and dine them, but you have to be very mm -hmm. careful here, mm -hmm. especially if you've got regulators in, a, in an industry that is being watched. Right, right. So when I came to Japan in 1990 with AT&T, it was very interesting because I remember uh, being told by Japanese company corporate friends of mine that they felt that when they went to Washington, D.C., they were immediately approached by American lawyers, lobbyists, consultants IRS. would offer yes. you know, their services to introduce them to people, you know, to make connections and so forth and provide them information about what's going on Capitol Hill and so forth. But they were saying that they really uh, felt uh, that the foreign companies coming to Japan were at a disadvantage because there wasn't that kind of an industry mm -hmm. in Japan at that time. This was right. like you know, 20 some years ago. Um, since that time, I think you know, your company and others have been developing that, but uh, traditionally, Japanese companies have had that internally, you know, within the company, right. and so uh, there hasn't been such a, uh, unlike Washington D.C., an industry right. of uh, lawyers, lobbyists, consultants, and former, you know, go uh, former government officials and former members of the Congress who will help to guide companies, both right. domestic and foreign. I think from the Japanese perspective, it has a little bit. You go to Washington D.C. or maybe even in London, it has a little bit of an icky feel to it. You know, I'm supposed to pay you so you can open doors for me, mm. right? But here in Japan, I mean, the, the dynamics are, are very different. I mean, it's, mm. you, you can have a meeting with just about anybody who, who is influential inside the parliament. Just take getting a second meeting is, is <laughs> the, the trick, right? Because yeah, if, right. if you don't do such a good job in the first meeting, mm -hmm. you know, they won't talk to you ever again. Right. Yeah. But it seems like in Japan, I mean, it's pretty obvious that uh, who does the introduction, you know, makes a big difference. Right. So, right. nice to know the the right people. Yes. But to wrap it up, speaking about Ambassador William Haggerty's positioning now in the U.S. Embassy and supported by uh, DCM Joe Young, mm -hmm. any final thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that uh, since the ambassadors had three years of experience working in Japan and having, I think, been with a uh, management consulting firm means that he's had access to many different industries. Mm -hmm. So I think he probably has a good, you know, background based on that as well as his time in Tennessee working with Japanese companies. So I expect he'll you know, be quite successful in developing business, right. and uh, he will uh, face uh, face challenges with regard to issues like North Korea and China and Okinawa. South China Seas and you know, Okinawa right. and all that stuff. But 
But Joe Young, he's Joe Young is a seasoned uh, bureaucrat. Yes, bureau yeah, he's very, very, uh, very experienced, and and since he was on the Japan desk, he knows all the issues. Mm -hmm. Please stay tuned. We're going to continue to watch this. You should too. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is August twenty first, two thousand seventeen. The North Korea situation continues to be a thorn in the side of the United States, and that impacts the U.S.-Japan relationship and Japan's relationship with its Southeast Asia neighbors. I'm joined today by Glenn Fukushima. Glenn, thank you very much for joining. Good to be back. This issue and the recent exit of Steve Bannon from the inside circle of the, the president's uh, cabinet, not the cabinet, but his White kitchen House. cabinet, mm -hmm. is, uh, is a kind of a big shock. This war of the worlds, this war of words, actually, between the United States and, and the North Koreans, it's, uh, it's kind of leveled out a little bit? Well, I think it has uh, calmed down a bit, but at one point, uh, because of the rhetoric by both uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, there were a lot of people, in Republicans as well as Democrats, who were asking the two leaders to calm things down yeah. a bit. And um, I, I think there have been uh, a number of people who've been critical of the um, fact that uh, the rhetoric is heated up so much. And... Um, but as you mentioned, uh, C. Bannon, uh, who recently left the White House, uh, did have an interview with American prospect Bob Kuttner, interviewing him, in which he said, uh, in effect, that there really is no military option because uh, if the U.S. were to launch a first strike, that, that would result in immediate retaliation by North Korea, resulting in Seoul going up in flames. And right. so basically, um, Bannon, in his interview, uh, gave the impression that uh, there really is no military option, which goes counter to uh, many other people in the administration, including uh, NSC head McMaster and the Secretary of Defense, who have said that all options are on the table. Right. Well, that's the rough and tumble that happens, though, inside the president's office, isn't it? I mean, you were somewhat close to that, and, and you saw, you know, at least the maybe uh, from a 500-yard distance, how that, that kind of process well, goes on. it's true that there are often, you know, differences of views within the administration, but it's not that common that those views become public uh, so clearly. And, but I think, you know, in Bannon's case, uh, he, he obviously wanted to make that public. Right. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think, you know, I think most people watching this from the outside uh, are of the view that there are the, um, the people with the military background, you know, the Kelly, uh, who's the chief of staff now, and the Secretary of Defense and the uh, head of the National Security Council, who are the military people. Then there's the so-called globalists, uh, like the Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury and head of the National Economic Council. Uh, and then there is the America First group, which uh, Steve Bannon was representing, but still has a number of people still mm -hmm. left in the administration who uh, take a much more of a um, unilateral approach. And so whether it's on uh, security issues or on trade issues, I think this these three groups are constantly, right. uh, you know, in, in negotiations, and sometimes those differences come out. And what I think a lot of people don't know for sure is where does the president stand on these issues? Mm -hmm. I get asked all the time, you know, what my thoughts are on President Trump and why is he doing these things, and I'm mm -hmm. sure you get peppered with those right. as well. I think the, the new dynamic here in this White House is that I don't know if it's leaks, but it's just so much information is, is coming out. I mean, the president okay. hims himself right. tweets on this, <laughs> right. sure. and it, it causes a lot of confusion. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, you want to have, you know, a kind of a policy 
mm. position mm -hmm. on some of these issues, and mm -hmm. people are looking in the tea leaves, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah, So, but I think what's really interesting is that the president himself has said repeatedly in his books and also during the campaign, he said, one of America's weaknesses is that America is too predictable. We mm -hmm. have to be less predictable. So I think some people say that he looks at this kind of as a real estate negotiation, and if you show all your, show all your hands at the beginning, then uh, you are at a disadvantage. So you always have to keep the other party guessing. So, so one issue has to do with the fact that he thinks it's good to be unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Another, I think, is that uh, his management style has been, uh, as a real estate um, businessman, to hire people who are very loyal to him but people who don't necessarily have the same views. And uh -huh. he has them debate among themselves, and at the end of the day, he makes the decision. So the people who are actually in the decision-making process don't know for sure what the final <laughs> outcome is gonna be. And then the, I think the third thing is that although people say that, um, uh, you know, people say, well, he's the first president who doesn't have either military background or political background, but he does have business background. However, although he does have business background, he's not like Tillerson, who joined a company and made his way up through the ranks, responsible for bosses, responsible for shareholders, responsible for uh, a board of directors. Mm -hmm. So he's had this real estate business handed down from his father, and he's basically made all the decisions by himself. So there's no necessary methodical, systematic way of making decisions. And so that's part of the reason I think that it's so difficult to read from the outside what the final outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the good news from this is maybe over the last 10 days or so, they haven't fired any rockets towards Guam. And people here in Japan were, I mean, it's not, too, it's not stretching it to say terrified that these missiles would be launched. Some of them might uh, fall on Japan or Japanese territory and ignite just a, you know, a, a regional war. Yeah, so I think that the fact that uh, Kim Jong-un has said he's going to reconsider uh, what he had announced before of launching some mm -hmm. missiles close to Guam um, means that uh, things have you know, pull, pull, been pulled back a bit. And I think the president, I think, tweeted something about that's a great decision. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, so I, th I think you know things are becoming a little, little, little calmer now, mm -hmm. which is good. Yep. And also, this this plays into um, the prime minister's hands a little bit, I think, in trying to strengthen the SDF forces mm -hmm. to make them into sure. actually a, a national army, hopefully, yeah. and also to take a lot more of the responsibility of defending the islands. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, they are clearly under the United States nuclear umbrella, mm -hmm. but there's a lot, and I think the ambassador is also saying to the Japanese, there's a lot more that you could do that we're looking forward mm -hmm. for you doing so that we, the, the relationship becomes a little bit more balanced. So I think this recent 2 plus 2 meeting in right. Washington, D.C. was very positive. And I think especially since on the Japanese side, Kono, the new uh, foreign minister, uh, he's fluent in English, mm -hmm. he's a Georgetown graduate, knows Washington very well. He goes there quite often. He's got a lot of friends in the U.S., and also, um, Onodera, right. the new uh, defense minister, is someone who's already been in that position before, right. and so he's, he really knows the issues. Mm -hmm. So I think having these two go to Washington and have their discussions with Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis was very positive. Mm -hmm. And to your point, uh, Onodera did mention that Japan is likely to introduce this uh, uh, Aegis Ashore uh, additional uh, missiles to try mm -hmm. to um, shoot down uh, North Korean uh, missiles. So. I think it's true that uh, Japan uh, is, you know, building up its uh, defense capabilities. Right, right. You know, the deputy chief of mission, um, Joe Young, is also apparently uh, very familiar with Korea, North Korea, mm -hmm. in addition to having a, a long stint of, you know, facilitating Japanese issues. Right. He's also served in China, in Beijing. Okay. And so, yeah, he knows quite well about Northeast Asia. So that's mm -hmm. reassuring.
Always exciting times when North Korea is involved. Please stay tuned to this issue because it's not over yet. Hi everyone, welcome back. It's August 21st, 2017. Prime Minister Abe has reshuffled his cabinet. They are in position and they're already active in their various fields of interest. My guest today is Glenn Fukushima and we're gonna discuss the policy implications, the foreign policy with the new cabinet and maybe an emboldened prime minister in moving the ball forward. Well, yes, the uh, deputy prime minister also is going to the United States soon to prepare for the, um, I guess, second formal meeting of this economic dialogue between the U.S. and Japan. That was put off, wasn't it? They, they well, were supposed yes. to have it a couple of months, maybe yeah, six months true. ago. Yeah, that's true. When the Vice President Pence came to Japan in uh, right. April, uh, I think they had said they hoped to meet again in June, but uh, frankly, the U.S. side is not very well prepared because there aren't many people in senior positions. Right. You know, the, the White House has lots of people because those people don't require Senate confirmation. But if you look at State Department, Commerce Department, USTR, Agriculture Department, there are very few people in place at the Deputy Secretary, Undersecretary, Assistant Secretary level. So, for instance, you know, at the State Department, there's no Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia right. uh, yet. And so I think part of uh, the problem is that the U.S. side needs more time to prepare. The Japanese side has been prepared for months now. Right. <laughs> and uh, so originally, I think the second meeting was supposed to take place in June, but it's been postponed. And so I guess, um, you know, Deputy Prime Minister also is going to have the meeting with Vice President Pence to prepare for the next meeting. Mm -hmm. It'll be a two-day meeting. I imagine it will be really packed. And the Deputy Prime Minister will be accompanied by everybody's carrying their suitcases and their briefcases and their briefing papers to talk about the, the economic relationship and the, the, the policy implications. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think actually it, it may not be such a long meeting <laughs> because, as I say, there aren't that many people on the U.S. side uh, to the, the, that are in position, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing too, and this has been pointed out to me by some Japanese senior officials, is that from all the indications from the administration at this point, the real priority of the administration right now is on NAFTA, renegotiating NAFTA with Canada and with right. Mexico. That's going to take a lot of the resources of the USTR and maybe Commerce Department, maybe Agriculture Department as well. Um, and there are uh, also these discussions with China about trying to gain market access in China. And um, so, you know, to what extent the U.S.-Japan bilateral economic initiative is going to be a high priority, right. it's, it's, a, it's somewhat questionable. It could be, once again, you know, um, backdoor, not backdoor, it could be, once again... Kind of pack it up, we'll put on the back burner. Yeah, back burner and... But, yeah. and Which is fine for Japan. <laughs> we had Japan passing before, right? Yeah, right. right. So... Um, Maybe that's that's not such a bad thing. Hmm. Well, um, I think from the Japanese point of view, um, you know, they're they're kind of ready when the U.S. is ready, uh, and the U.S. at this point, I think, is putting the priority on on NAFTA. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, as you know, the TPP eleven is going forward, and so the uh, countries other than the United States who are part of the TPP are continuing their meetings and uh, planning eventually to have the TPP go into effect without the United States. Right. Well, you know, uh, obviously one of the economic issues is uh, one of uh, Koike, the governor of Tokyo, uh, Koike's pet projects, which mm. is making Japan a financial center. Mm -hmm. right. And apparently, you know, that's, that's a big issue mm. uh, for the, the United States as well, because Japan has, in spite of everything else, has not been able to assert that. Well, you know, I, I'm not sure to what extent, you know, other countries are clamoring about that issue. 
I know I've been in a couple of meetings where the Governor Koike has said that this is a high priority for her, but this is something that's been pretty much discussed for the last you know, 20 some years. I remember when I came to Japan in 1990 with AT&T, already there was a, um, uh, a study group that Mr. Mori, the head of the Mori Buildings at the time, a study group on how to make Tokyo more attractive. Um, as an uh, investment? Yeah, investment center. Right. And uh, as president of the American Chamber, I made a number of suggestions about what you know, Tokyo could do to make itself more attractive. But so this has been an issue for a long time. And one of the interesting things here that I should mention is that um, when I attended just last month a conference where the governor mentioned this, uh, after she left, uh, it was interesting that several of the people at the conference pointed out that a lot of the things that need to be done to make Tokyo more attractive are not, not actually under the control of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Mm -hmm. These people, I said, so I said, what percent? The people there who are all financial experts said that maybe, maybe one third of the changes that need to be made are under the control of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. And actually two thirds of what need to be done are the control, under the control of the Ministry of Finance, Bank of Japan, and the Financial Services Agency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it'll be interesting to see whether those four forces will be in alignment. Well, the other thing, I mean, you've got a long-term view. You've been doing this for a, an awful long time. But the Japanese banks themselves, they are just so insular. They really, you know, new products, new services, they're very hard to integrate into the system. And they really, they're, they're fine the way they are. You know, we don't need uh, much of your advice. Thank you very much, whoever that might be, the Swiss or the Americans or the British. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got our own, our own closed market and we're mm -hmm. okay with that. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, I should point out is that, uh, and it was discussed uh, when the governor mentioned this issue, is that some of the issues are specific to the financial industry, but others have to do with things like you know, using English you know, more widely or uh, re um, relaxing the regulations on um, uh, people who can help, uh, like uh, maids you know, to mm -hmm. housekeepers, and also international schools. You know, these are not on the jurisdiction of the, the financial agencies. Right. There's, like, there's justice ministry, there's education ministry, there's these other labor ministry, uh, labor uh, welfare ministry. So to really make Tokyo a major center that can compete with Hong Kong or Singapore or even Shanghai, I think it's going right. to take a more comprehensive approach. Sure. And, and uh, uh, I, I think it's very uh, um, good thing that the governor is taking uh, initiative on this. But uh, I think what she can do on her own is rather limited. You're right. You know, it seems like sometimes being an expatriate in Japan doesn't benefit you that much. I mean, the United States taxes you, the Japanese tax you, mm -hmm. the, the inheritance laws apply to you if you might die here to all of your assets as, a, as an executive from a, a foreign country. And it's just, it's really onerous. I think a lot of foreigners who might consider having a career in Japan would rethink that with the long arm of the, the Japanese tax authorities on tax and on investment and on uh, capital gains, that sort of thing. To mm -hmm. say nothing mm -hmm. about, you know, when you marry a Japanese girl and you have Japanese kids, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that in this country, you know, mm -hmm. your, your wife could, you know, separate you from, mm -hmm. from that. And that's a, that's a real, I mean, people, you know, don't want to even mm. tempt that, that kind of fate. No, it's true that there are a lot of um, disincentives mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, um, and um, but you know I think you know people are getting more serious in Japan about trying to reduce the disincentives right. because they realize that if they continue the way they are now, that it's going to be difficult to attract um, good talent. So let's say Japan is put maybe on the back burner. 
what areas in the financial services or in the, the, the policy implications between the United States and Japan can we look forward to getting traction? You mentioned earlier agriculture, and I think that's probably right. I think they're primed for that. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think that because of the U.S. withdrawal from the TPP, those American companies and industries that were hoping to benefit from TPP, those will be the ones that will go to the administration and say, okay, you've withdrawn from TPP, but we thought we were going to get these benefits, like the beef industry, for instance, right? And so these, uh, I mean, pharmaceuticals, you know, other, other industries that uh, were hoping to benefit from TPP, I think those will be the ones that go to the administration and say, hey, you know, we thought we were going to get some benefits. Uh, since we've withdrawn us from TPP, we like to make sure that on a bilateral basis we mm -hmm. get benefits. Because the other factor to keep in mind is that not only have Australia and Japan have an EPA, but the EU and Japan recently signed an e uh, uh, a, uh, economic partnership agreement. And that, I remember when I was at Airbus, that that was a pending issue for years and years and years. And it's actually part of, part of the acceleration of the EU-Japan um, EPA was the fact that the U.S. is withdrawn from TPP. Mm -hmm. So Europe is going to a lot of better, for instance, I was just in Napa Valley and uh, enjoying some wineries. American wines are really going to suffer from the fact that the EU and Japan have signed this, this um, uh, agreement, the uh, tariffs on U.S. wine are going to be much higher than tariffs on European wine coming into Japan. So I think there are going to be a lot of industries in the United States that wow. may suffer mm -hmm. that are going to go to the administration and say, okay, you've decided against the, the multilateral, let's do the bilateral. Right, right. But the, the administration or the president himself might say, well, yeah, you know, you guys were... Uh, leaning on on my uh, my predecessor, and you had good relationships with him. So you know, there's the door, right? I mean, he, but, he's you know, but he's Donald Trump is a businessman, right? He's a businessman. He should be helping American right. business, right? Right. Yeah. So well, I mean, I think the expectation is that that he he will help American business, and he's got a ambassador here who's a businessman too, right? Right. Right. A new chapter in U.S.-Japan relationships with the Deputy Prime Minister meeting the Vice President in two weeks. Please stay tuned.